Welcome to Talking Feds, Women at the Table, a podcast that brings to the table legal and policy professionals for a lively and intellectual discussion that amplifies voices that are often unheard. I'm Melissa Murray, the Stokes Professor of Law at NYU School of Law and the Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network. I'm Ann Milgram, Professor of Practice and Distinguished Scholar at NYU School of Law and the former Attorney General for the state of New Jersey. And I'm Juliette Kayyem, Faculty Chair of the Homeland Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and former Assistant Secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. I am very excited about today's episode because later on, we're going to be joined by Fatima Goss-Graves, who is the President and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. She's going to help us dig into the impact that COVID is having on women in the workplace. I should also note that Fatima was a year ahead of me in law school, and she was and still is a very dear friend, and I'm really happy to have her on the podcast today. But also, I'm really excited to have the chance to work with her in my capacity as a member of the NWLC's board of directors. But before we get to our conversation with Fatima, I thought we should talk about some of the stories that have dropped this week. So let's turn to COVID first. What did you all think about the recent attacks on Dr. Fauci and the news about the Trump pandemic advisor, Dr. Atlas, who has been praising the idea of herd immunity? Praising the idea of like mass murder. Yes, we like this one. That's a good, (laughs) that seems like a good closing argument for the second term of the Trump administration. It's an interesting tactic. I think it's Trump's attempt to just talk about anything else. He obviously in the past has never liked anyone having the limelight. Fauci is beloved and respected and seems to just sort of have a, I just need to hold on for two more weeks attitude, knowing that Trump probably cannot fire him anymore. Dr. Atlas is from the Hoover Institute, which is affiliated with Stanford, which I do think Stanford needs to have a little bit of a reckoning of what's happening at that institution. He's not a specialist. He has doctor in his title, but not a pandemic specialist and believes that herd immunity is the way forward. Now, let me just tell you, herd immunity is the way we get through it, but you actually achieve herd immunity through a vaccine. Until then, you need to protect people because herd immunity, meaning infecting everyone, will lead to millions of deaths. So we are, you know, we're entering the winter of our discontent. Those of us who are specialists in this couldn't say it more often. Numbers are going up. Hospitalizations are going up. The good news is, is deaths at hospitals are either plateauing or going down. That means we're getting better at treatment. But if we don't have hospital capacity, which is the number that people like me look at and which is starting to become very worrisome, that's the fear we had in March, that our hospital system could not survive the number of patients that would need some sort of hospitalization. And Isn't that also part of the worry, Juliet, with yeah. the herd immunity idea, which is basically you just let all these people become sick and... I mean, first of all, we're nowhere, I think it's worth saying, we're nowhere near herd immunity, right? And and like every time I hear somebody say that, it's like the numbers in the U.S., I mean, there's nowhere near the number of people who would have to get sick. And then second, the question is capacity to actually treat people. And we know when you don't have capacity that a lot more people die as a result of the disease. So, so Juliet, can I ask a question just for clarification? Um, the last time I heard about herd immunity was when my kids were really little. And the idea was because babies cannot be vaccinated, all of the adults around them have to be vaccinated. And the idea of everyone getting a vaccination and creating herd immunity for those who are too vulnerable to be vaccinated themselves makes sense. But the idea that herd immunity flowing from everyone contracting a virulent and deadly virus just seems 
insane. You're absolutely right. It, it's so shocking to the conscience that this is not only discussed, but that the person who, who I think is arguably probably the most powerful person on the task force now, everyone else having been sidelined, um, believes in it. They've, they've got to see the numbers, but I, I think it's just consistent with how Trump has been since March, which is, or since actually January when he first learned of this, which is what's my easy way out where I don't have to lift a finger. And I, I think that this is it, right? You don't have to worry about PPE or defense production. I mean, you basically just say, let it rip. I mean, that is essentially their philosophy. And you can't argue otherwise in terms of what we will anticipate in December in terms of preparations for that or, you know, demanding more masking or getting us ready for PPE. Meanwhile, at the state and local level, you're just going to have hospitals encountering these higher infection rates. They don't, herd immunity is having no strategy resulting in millions of deaths. And we just have to hope that there's a course correction in November because, as I said, you know, we're entering what is arguably the worst time for our COVID response, because the numbers are not stabilized. They're going up across the country. You have fatigue. So people are not ready to hunker down like they did in March. And we're going to be inside where infection rates are are greater with the cold weather. One of the things I thought was remarkable about Dr. Atlas this week also was when he tweeted out or made the comment that masks don't work. Right. That he basically said yeah. masks. No. And and Twitter actually stopped that. And I thought it was a really important moment of drawing the line on something that's not consistent with the science. Um, but it really is. It's sort of an alternate. It feels like an alternate universe in some yeah. ways when I'm watching and listening to the president versus listening to all of the health experts. And can we just take a moment and talk about the 60 minutes piece with Dr. Fauci, yeah. who. Is just like he's just a national treasure. Right. Like I, I mean, I watch that, and like you see, he and his wife cooking dinner, and just, I mean, he's he's literally like put his body and his scientific reputation in front of the steam truck that is the president of the United States to like try to protect all of us. And I think you have a little bit of a crush on Dr. Fauci. I know. Who doesn't? I mean, he is adorable. (laughs) You know, the town that we sometimes stay in made Dr. Fauci donuts. And so every Friday I was like, come on, guys, we got to go get the donuts. Like, I got to support Dr. Fauci. (laughs) And it's cavelling over Dr. Fauci. But I I will note that although he enjoys incredible popularity among Democrats and independents. I think it's like 86% of Democrats have a favorable impression of him and 71% of independents. He actually has a 45% approval rating among registered Republicans. And it's actually dropped over the last two months, which I imagine is in part because of the president's attacks on him. So, I mean, even Dr. Fauci can't get away from the incredibly polarized times in which we are living. I mean, he has security details. I mean, this is, you know, you're just like, here's this guy who no one outside the field of pandemics had really ever heard of, even though he's done incredible work in the past. And he, I think he has like the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And now he has a security detail because of the threats that he's facing, you know, the language that the president uses in terms of freedom and anti-masking and we have to liberate Michigan and liberate America. Um, He is under threat. And one of the oddest things about President Trump's sort of attacks on Fauci is he often says, well, he got it wrong. We're, We're talking about masking. So what's weird is in that statement, Trump is actually acknowledging that the mask was Right, right. In other words, he's saying he had it wrong, and then now he's saying that masks are, and yet Trump won't buy into that. 
Trump knows that masking is important. He just knows also that his base wants him to say otherwise. I will say one of the good things that I look for these gems and some of the polling, whatever is happening at this level and the madness of Dr. Atlas and uh, President Trump, something like the last poll I saw, like 76 to 78 percent of Americans believe in mandatory or some sort of compelled masking policy, like especially in public. What that tells me is that Trump He's trying to fight a culture war over COVID. Most Americans, as we're seeing in the polling about COVID, recognize this is not a culture war. This is a pandemic and that we need to protect ourselves from. So the American public, I think at least a large majority of them sort of get what the masking debate is actually about. You know what's so sad, though, as we're talking about it, it occurs to me how sad it is that Dr. Fauci, the scientists have done exactly what you're supposed to do, which is you gain evidence, you pull data. And if you learn something, you change your position. And so like the mask question up front, like we just didn't know the more they've learned, the more tests and they've run these incredible tests at multiple institutions. And they now are able to say masks are critical for safety and for not contracting COVID. It is exactly what you want to have happen. And yet the politics is to use that against him and against scientists for doing exactly what they should do. And we should all want them to do, which is, if they're not right, change their position. Can I ask a vaccine question, too, since we're going to be talking a lot about women and moms tonight? Mm-hmm. I always use my opportunities with Juliet to quiz her on <laughs> things that I think are relevant to my family. Not to hijack this for our personal. No, no, no. This is why, this is why you know, this is, this is why we're here is, you know, but no, tell me, what, what's the question about vaccines? I just heard today that the kids vaccine won't even be available till the fall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Till next fall. I'm curious. Like, how does this work? And like, yeah. are our kids then at risk? Like, you know, how do you think about this? So everyone knows I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. I am a consumer of health intelligence. So here's the way I live. There is not a vaccine and there will not be a vaccine. So today is all about masking, social distancing. Tomorrow is about quick tests and getting the testing system in place and eventually is my vaccine. So I I literally do not think about a vaccine. I am happy that people seem to think that we're gonna have one. We don't have one. And we're not gonna have one that is ready for mass manufacturing and distribution until well into 2021, well into 2021. Then you've got the distribution challenge, right? Which is the logistics challenge that I've been writing a lot about, which is, you know, how do you, you know, who's first seems pretty obvious, you know, medical professionals, military, who's second, third, fourth, and who's last in terms of vaccination, including children, as we're talking about, those are harder. What's the distribution going to look like across the state? Because it's going to be in waves. So you're talking about best case scenario is late 2021. Okay. So if that's the case, then all these questions I can't answer because I don't know what the, in terms of what the science is going to tell me in terms of would I, or, or should I, in other words, if I could give every American a drug, it would be assume you're not going to have a vaccine because this is a virus that that can't be managed. We're having problems in Europe again. They're shutting back down, but they are gonna they're gonna be able to manage this pretty effectively. You look at Asia, you look at the data coming out of Asia, not just in terms of numbers, but their economic bounce back is is remarkable. I mean you want to talk about putting a lie to the notion that we were sold by the Trump administration that the you know we had to get the economy moving so everyone had to get outside. China is showing if you stay inside or 
a lot of Asian countries for eight weeks, you can actually get your economy roaring. I know between masking, social distancing, work from home, potting, all the kind of stuff that we're learning how to do, I've got 20 different tools that I didn't have in March even absent a vaccine that are going to make me live better in 2021. I'm an optimistic, I mean, we can do this. This is totally doable without a vaccine because I, I see no trajectory that gets me to a mass U.S. distribution, best case scenario before September, October. And you're talking to someone who was involved with H1N1. I know how hard a vaccine distribution is. All right, does that make you happy? You should be happy. It does make me happy. It also, I, I mean- it makes me happy in the sense of like, I feel like it's really important just to focus on what you can, right? right? right. And sort of live in the moment of it. The other question on vaccine, and Melissa may have one too, but the other thing I read and was curious to, to sort of ask you about is a lot of people are talking about there are multiple vaccines mm-hmm. that are being developed and there is no comparable study. If all of us were thinking or like thinking logically, you would want all five of those to sort of figure out which one's the best and mass produce that. But it doesn't sound like that's the way we do things at the FDA or in the United States. And so it's a little bit also of how do you know whether the vaccine will actually be effective? I mean, look, there was good news out of this week. The FDA won the battle against the White House. It will not be approving any vaccines or any emergency authorizations before Election Day. The industry, pinch me, has shown a certain amount of conservativeness, I think, because they don't want to put a vaccine out into the market that's not effective or worse is harmful. I think it's possible we get some really good news like later in December about one vaccine being very, very effective, but then you've got to, you've got to mass test it. And then let's say we really get good numbers. You got to test it again, and then you got to manufacture it, and then you got to distribute it. And I'm, I often say about COVID, it just wants two things, right? It wants its next victim or its next, you know, live host, and it wants respect. I think we know how to show COVID respect in terms of recognizing it's a respiratory contagion and, and to respect it, to recognize that it is powerful, but it doesn't mean that we're losing to it. I'm glad that you're optimistic, Juliet, and it does give me some comfort to know that it is manageable, even if it's not necessarily surmountable in the yeah. short term. I guess where I come out, though, is it's really easy for us to say that. Like, you know, we have resources, you know, our kids can manage, like Anne and I have really flexible schedules. We can do all of that. I'm just thinking about all of the people who really have been pushed to the brink on this. And, you know, you know the data better than I do, but even as we've sort of narrowed the distance between hospital admissions and deaths resulting after a hospital admissions, there's still enormous racial and socioeconomic disparities that, you know, that are the result of sort of institutional issues that background these particular cases. And, you know, we're just, we're really fortunate. And our good fortune, I think, shadows that optimism. Like we can be optimistic because we have the tools to manage this and not everyone will. Our challenges are ones often of inconvenience. It's just, there's no, there's no other path forward. I mean, in the sense, like this is the shame of it all. And the outrage of it all is the hemorrhaging of our economy and of people who are really hurting could have ended in June, July. And this is, I agree with you. This is a shame of all. It's just, there's 
no going back. There's only going through at this stage. And this is the way through. It's not to dream of a vaccine because then forget it. You're going to be waiting forever. Well, I was I was thinking about this, too, and I was reading about sort of the impact of COVID on women in the workplace. But I was mm-hmm. also just sort of stunned by the there's a Brookings report talking about essentially working women. Forty six percent are in low wage jobs. Right. So to your point, Melissa, I mean, there are a lot of people who are living basically day to day and who also have child care issues and who are overrepresented in low wage jobs that are often also the most dangerous right now, right? Working at a grocery store, you yeah. know, doing doing sort of the, the kind of things that we rely on. So I have also thought a little bit about this, particularly in the context of the failure of the federal government to do the next stimulus package, because it does feel to me like we have to be taking care of people and dealing with the disease and making sure people can live and work safely. And so it just it really raises a huge issue. Yeah. All right, that's a perfect place to stop because that'll tee us right up for our conversation with Fatima. But before we get to Fatima, I want to first introduce this week's broad topic, where we offer listeners a glimpse into a landmark legal milestone in the progress toward gender equality. Today's broad topic is on the case Duran versus Missouri, which Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued on behalf of the ACLU Women's Rights Project. This case established the right of women to serve on juries. This case, which was argued in 1979, was Justice Ginsburg's last case as an advocate before the Supreme Court. This is submitted. We'll hear arguments next in uh, 6067, Duran against Missouri. Duran versus Missouri challenged a Missouri law that allowed women to opt out of jury service at various stages of the jury selection process. The defendant in the case, Mr. Duran, had been convicted of first-degree murder and first-degree robbery. He challenged his conviction on the ground that although women represented 54% of the community, because of the opt-out rule, only 26% of summoned jurors had been women, and indeed, only 15% of those who had showed up for jury selection had been women. The state defended the law on the ground that it was simply a privilege that allowed women to opt out of jury service because women, as everyone knew, were too fragile to endure the rigors of jury service. Interestingly, the Missouri rule was different from a law that had recently been challenged before the court just a few years earlier in a case called Taylor versus Louisiana. Taylor versus Louisiana was a challenge to a Louisiana rule that allowed women to opt in to criminal jury service. There was also another complementary rule in Louisiana that allowed women to opt into civil jury service. In a case called Edwards versus Healy, Ginsburg had argued that the Louisiana law that required women to opt into civil juries was unconstitutional. But because it was a civil jury issue and not a criminal jury issue, she couldn't rely on the Sixth Amendment to make her case and instead made her case on the grounds of the Equal Protection Clause. Ultimately, Louisiana changed the law and the case was mooted before the court could actually decide the issue. But it did go on to decide the question of criminal juries and an opt-in rule for women in Taylor versus Louisiana. There, the court found the Louisiana rule unconstitutional in an eight-to-one decision and said that women could not be required to opt-in. The question, of course, in Duran versus Missouri was whether a rule that allowed women to opt-out was similarly unconstitutional. In her oral argument before the court, Ginsburg argued that it was. As she explained... 
Although this rule, like the rule challenged in Taylor versus Louisiana, was a kind of privilege for women, one that was intended to protect them from the rigors of jury service, it was no better than the many laws based on a kind of benevolent sexism that allowed women to opt out of various aspects of civic life. The court said in Taylor that it is untenable to suggest it would be a special hardship for a woman to perform jury duty simply because of her sex. Post-Taylor then, a woman's work, whether at home or on the job, and the administrative convenience of treating all women as expendable, these are not even arguable bases for diminishing the defendant's Sixth Amendment right by diluting the quality of community judgment a jury trial provides. Ginsburg explained, in assuming that women could not handle the rigors of jury service, the state was not only engaging in a dangerous kind of stereotyping, it was also suggesting that women's participation in public life, like jury service, was not required in the way that men's service was required, that women were merely and happy to have add-on, but not necessarily required in the jury pool. To conclude, the unconstitutionality of Missouri's excuse for any woman as it operates to distort Jackson County jury panels is plainly established. Any sensible reading of this record juxtaposed with this court's eight-to-one judgment in Taylor leads ineluctably to that conclusion. You won't settle for putting Susan B. Anthony on the new dollar. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately, the Supreme Court agreed with Ginsburg. In an eight-to-one decision written by Justice Byron White, the court held that Duran's Sixth Amendment right to a jury composed of a cross-section of the community had been violated. As the majority explained, In order to establish a prima facie violation of the fair cross-section requirement of the Sixth Amendment, the defendant had to show that the group alleged to be excluded was a distinctive group in the community and that the representation of this group in the veneers from which the jury was selected was not fair and reasonable in relation to the number of such persons in the community. And then finally, that the underrepresentation of the group was due to systematic exclusion from the jury selection process. Upon determining that all of these requirements had been satisfied, the court then turned to whether the state had justified women's exemption from jury service in some kind of way. Ultimately, the court concluded that there was no reasonable justification. As it said, quoting Taylor versus Louisiana, it is untenable to suggest these days that it would be a special hardship for each and every woman to perform jury service or that society cannot spare any women from their present duties. This may be the case with many, and it may be burdensome to sort out those who should be exempted from those who should serve, but that task is performed in the case of men, and the administrative convenience in dealing with women as a class is insufficient justification for diluting the quality of community judgment represented by the jury in criminal trials. Ginsburg, again, prevailed before the court, but it was to be her last formal argument before the court. In 1980, she was appointed to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And as we all know, in 1993, she would be appointed to the United States Supreme Court. Well, I hope you all enjoyed learning about Duran versus Missouri and one of these lesser known cases that Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued. And it's a perfect segue because our guest is someone who is walking in the footsteps that Justice Ginsburg once trod. So I'm really excited that Fatima Goss-Graves is here to join us. Fatima, thank you so much for speaking with us about the impact COVID is having on women in the workforce. 
Oh, I'm so happy to be with you and actually to have this conversation right now. So thanks for having me. Well, the National Women's Law Center reported that of the 1.1 million people ages 20 and over who have left the workforce between August and September of this year, over 800,000 of them were women. And that figure includes 324,000 Latinas and 58,000 Black women. And we are all working parents ourselves, so we are feeling the pressure of the caregiving burden in this pandemic. And I mean, I have been helping out with Zoom. My husband and I have become (laughs) terrible fourth grade teachers operating a very struggling homeschool with lagging standards. We we all have stories. And, you know, Anne, you have stories, Juliet. Let's just confess. What are your COVID confessionals? How are you doing this right now? <laughs> so that's a job. Um, be funny. No, I know. I, when this started, I was like going to be so distant. My kids are a little bit older and they're going to be, and so I, um, yeah, I was like, okay, well, two hours of screen time. You can have two, not including school, you can have two hours of screen time. And then, like, two months later, I'm like, I said 20. Didn't I say 20? I didn't. Right, exactly. Like, I, I didn't, 20 I didn't mean two. I meant 20. <laughs> like, you know, I have no capacity to, to monitor this. It's really bad. I found my fourth grader watching Shark Tank yesterday, and I was like, this will be good. It's like an MBA. But it's business skill. <laughs> yeah, it's entrepreneurial. It's yeah. We have a lot of like Legos and Ninjago going on in our house. And I will tell you that we've had some epic Zoom moments. We've had a couple. One where one of our son's friends cut his hair. This was like in June. And the teacher was like, um, what's, what's happening? <laughs> but we've also had times where I'm supposed to be, you know, I'm trying to juggle work and keeping yeah. an eye on a six-year-old while they're in school. And you you guys all know this, but everything's fine till it isn't. And so you think everything's fine. You're on a work call. And then all of a sudden you hear the teacher saying like, your child's name, where are you? Where are you? <laughs> and you know, he's disappeared. He's just gone. He's hidden. And then I have to search and, you know, look, it's hard. And as, as Melissa said earlier, we're all really lucky. lucky. And I feel like, you know, Fatima, like this, I went through today, I read the report that you did, which is amazing. And I think it's so important. And then I pulled the McKinsey report Mm -hmm. and the Brookings report. And like just the the takeaway, which just hurts my heart, is that the virus is it's unearthing all the problems we have in our society. And now it's just it's pulling women out of the workforce, mothers, women of color, senior leaders, women who are senior, like just at at stunning rates. And I think that question is like, what do we do? How do we stop this from happening? I mean, this is something that families in this country, workplaces in this country, schools in this country are feeling and people weren't talking about it really. Mm -hmm. Right. Like we weren't talking about the fact that you would see, you might bump into a friend at the grocery store and they have this wild look in their eyes of like Mm -hmm. barely keeping it together. And that's that, feeling of it's impossible to actually work and care and actually be a teacher because, you know, the care part is a little bit different from, from teaching. It's impossible for people to do this all at the same time. And we have been tracking data to see what is the impact because we knew a couple of things were true. We knew that women, especially women of color, were more likely to actually be essential workers, right? That for Black women who are working right now, about one in three are essential workers because Hmm. they're overrepresented in healthcare. 
in some public sector jobs. They're just more likely to be essential workers. But we also knew that the care burden uh, would disproportionately fall on women in a range of ways that would be kind of unseen. And so when you look at that September data, it was pretty astonishing. I have never seen mm-hmm. numbers like that. I don't think it's an accident that it was happening around the reboot and restart to school, yeah. right? Because I, I mean, I have to say for myself, I was like, how, okay, I have to make sure you log in and out of Zoom every 20 to 30 minutes, basically, yeah. <laughs> in, in a different place. And you're yeah. eight, yeah. right? Like I, yeah. I, yeah. I just, I was like, I'm not sure how that, how this is happening. So it, we are, we're in a real crisis and it's a crisis that it sort of builds upon the fact that we were fragile to begin with, right? The dirty secret is that our care infrastructure was built on largely really low paid black and brown women. And it wasn't actually meeting the needs of most working parents if you actually talk to them about what they needed. Mm -hmm. And when COVID happened and and people with really young children were using care centers and their care centers shut down, those are effectively small businesses and a good chunk of them are not coming back. Yeah. We haven't done the things we need to do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not just the care infrastructure that's lacking If you take one step back from that, it's because we, unlike a lot of other advanced democracies, have really relied on the family to patch up our tattered social welfare system. We've privatized the dependency of vulnerable people, whether it's children or the elderly, with the family and the assumption that whatever happens the family or the extended community of family members or churches or whatever will be able to accommodate those needs. But the only real subsidy, I think, or robust subsidy we have from the government is really the provision of public school. And when that fell apart, I think we really saw how desperately we depended on it. Right. Well, and there's a couple of things that it, it, there's a notion of, a particular type of family that the story of our care is built around. It's actually a family that didn't really exist when we began to build up that story for many people, but for sure does not exist now. Like right now, women in this country are the majority are either co or sole breadwinners Mm -hmm. for their family. So it's not like, you know, they're just working for pin money and there's some story like that's not the case. And when you think about the idea that this is sort of like a private problem that you either are really, really great at solving or terrible at it. And most of us are, are, are feeling like we're kind of terrible at it these yeah. days. That's also a story that makes it so you don't do this sort of investment. Like it's a mm-hmm. personal problem mm-hmm, if you right. have a care challenge right. rather than an infrastructure problem and in, in investment. That's so interesting. I mean, I come from the world of disaster management. And so I think schools are a critical infrastructure and we close them and we had no concept of the cascading losses. It's the same as losing water and it's the same as losing electricity and it's the same as losing your transportation system. And the fact that we would have closed them, which was totally right from the response perspective with no plan for what that would mean for society in the same way that that in critical infrastructure planning, you would think about what would it mean for this society to lose water, 
you know, for six months, you'd have systems of redundancy. You'd be bringing in, you know, all sorts of stuff. You know, we often say, and this, you know, my kids are a little bit older. So I think a lot about the sort of lost year in terms of socialness or some, my daughter left, left college and is, is off for the year. And so, and has that luxury. So I'm not crying me a river, but just the sort of the socialization aspects, the sort of all those things that you think about with teenage boys in particular. But, you know, in disaster management, we say, you know, disaster hits the society as it is, not as we want it to be. And it shows a mirror. Well, it's not just the rage that it's happening. It's sort of the failure to plan for it. I mean, it was one thing for schools to end in March, but like, were we never going to go back yeah. to school? Like how were you, what was going to happen in August and September? It was right. like, no one wanted to talk about it. Well, even now we just had this conversation about it's at least through 2021 yeah. Yeah. that we should be thinking that we're going to live through this. And this is the exact thing that we have to be thinking about for childcare, for schools. Like mm-hmm. now is the time to, to think about it. And if we keep thinking, well, it's going to be three months and we're going to have a vaccine, you stop doing the work that needs to be yeah. done. And you know, I guess the other question I sort of have for you, Fatima, is like, I feel like there we were starting to move towards this better place where we were understanding that that women do sort of, they're sandwiched, right, in care needs. Like, we've got kids and we've got elderly mm-hmm. parents. And so there's just a lot happening. And, and I remember seeing like a worker's bill of rights that we were starting to think about, could we create contracts that employees would get time to basically sort of work through all these things, which frankly, senior employees often have, right? But most people in the workforce don't have. We were close and now it feels like we're sort of pushing back from that. But it feels to me like we have to go a lot harder and further in that direction if we're going to come out of this with the ability to have women in the workplace again. And men. It's not just women. Men too. Yeah, And men. Exactly. It's everyone. It's everyone. You know, so what's interesting is I actually think there's an opportunity to build sort of a new type of coalition committed to solving these issues because I am hearing in ways that are different from companies about their understanding around what's happening with care, their ability for their companies to function. They have all of a sudden had dramatically reduced capacity with no notice. And if they think people are just going to be able to pop back without solving for these other care challenges, it won't happen. So there's there's an ability perhaps to actually build a stronger coalition. And the women that we're hearing from in this country, they're still sort of raging over, they're raging over COVID generally. And care is a piece of it, not the full. And when I think about 2021 and the demand, I think things like an essential worker bill of rights is a critical demand. I think things like having a significant care investment for K-12, but also pre-K and childcare and early learning more broadly is our demands have shifted and the needs have shifted. And so the idea that we would treat getting out of this recession or coming up with a jobs bill in a way that doesn't center what's happening right now with women is a non-starter. So it's not 2009 and the infrastructure package then, which was, you know, bridges and roads, which are important, but didn't actually create very many jobs that women held. It's a very different conversation now. Why can't we do more on zero to three? 
I mean, this just feels to me so obvious. And I think it's amazing that a lot of mayors have done 3K and pre-K. I applaud them, but I... Like, I just think it's such a critical time. And it's also in some ways the time that once your kids are in school, it's not easy, but there is at least sort of time that it changes the dynamic. But before then, it's there's really no options now. Yeah, I mean, it's expensive. So that's one thing. And right now we have this framework where families are, are by themselves sharing that expensive, bearing that expensive cost, right? So that's one piece of it, acknowledging that care of babies and yeah. toddlers is actually expensive care and you have to pay for it in that way. Um, and there aren't enough providers. And so that that is sort of related to what we pay, right? But if you're gonna actually do it in a meaningful way, right now there's whole parts of the country that have what what people call childcare deserts. Mm-hmm. And and mm. that is both in rural areas, but it's actually also in urban areas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's so much demand, they can't meet it. And we've lost about 20% of providers since the start of COVID. Well, a big part of that yeah. too is wow. local zoning laws that prohibit in-home daycares, which are it's a huge pop population of the broader caregiving universe. They're actually restricted from certain areas. I mean, this is sort of a NIMBY problem too. It's interesting because I have a feeling right now there's lots of violations of the, yeah. (laughs) As people like this pod culture has been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people who are working out of the home have to have some place to put their children. Kids who are, you know, your six year old is not just get it together on their own by themselves. And there's a lot of, (laughs) no. You know, I've seen those responsible six-year-olds, but my six we have amazing kids, but it's a lot to ask. It's just a lot to ask also to sort of self-educate or be online educating themselves. I mean, you don't want to get me started on what I actually think is like emotionally um, right. We do. (laughs) Yeah, we do want to get you started because in some ways, like we, we haven't been having this conversation together. We've all been sort of having it on the side privately. And it's just, it's so important to have it together. I really believe that if our children emerge from a global pandemic and in the midst of economic devastation and an uprising around racial injustice that is like their awakening at very yeah. young ages, emotionally well and healthy, then we have done right by them. Right. And the pressure to sort of meet a whole range of demands on their time that involve them sitting in front of a screen they don't want to be at, it's not reasonable. And you guys know... Yeah. That if you are on Zoom all day long, by the end of the day, you're done. Uh, yeah. Totally. And so the idea that our kids are supposed to be like focused, staring at the screen. I think the hardest thing for me is I can fill their days. They're, you know, then they're on bikes and they're more mobile. The hardest thing is just not being able to answer the future question. Like I can fill their days. I can't fill their future. And that's everything from Christmas, of which we had traditions, to next summer. All of a sudden now, next summer, I thought, okay, I can definitely think about next summer. I can't think about next. And I think, and then let alone what will be their experiences through, through, through these years. And so I think that for me is until we solve this problem, all this talk about the economy and how long are we going to be working from home from the employer perspective, right? From the business continuity perspective, there are multiple reasons why these companies are pushing their their stay-at-home policies or work-from-home policies 
through mid-2021 or end of 2021. So related to what Juliet just said, um, if we are all at home, does that provide employers with greater incentives to hire people who don't have children? Well, we're watching for this. Yeah. And I actually think the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission needs to put out some guidance around it because, you know, they do have some kind of older caregiver guidance from something like 2006. But one of the things that has us concerned, frankly, is that they won't say directly it's because you have children, Mm -hmm. but they'll put in place rules that absolutely are not related to the job, that people will be unable to meet those rules if you actually have children. So like your core hours are between 10 and 2, and in that period, you must be able to do X, Y, Z without a break. Well, if you are someone who has a kid and you're thinking about, I know at 1130, I'm going to have to log them (laughs) onto Zoom, or there's just a range of things. And then the other thing is the stereotypes that are brewing. There are some people who their partner is shouldering the lion's share of the work. It is not any particular woman in a household who's doing it, but that doesn't stop an employer from making all sorts of assumptions. We've been there before. There's the possibility of a really long-term hit around how people think about women and their leadership Yeah. And you think about the pandemic is different, and especially this pandemic, if you just look at the data, but the burdens down for working parents, and I'll be sexist here, working mothers in terms of kids, but also the daughter track, elderly parents and who's taking care of them. And that that sort of, you're up and down, you're up and down all the time because you know your parents, if they're still alive or are, are in the vulnerable population, your kids are home and you're trying to function day to day. That's not unique to a pandemic, but certainly this pandemic, given it's the vulnerable populations, it's a, another level of stress. And the truth is that someone has to make lunch. Yeah. Right? Like I always think it like, it's as simple as like, look, somebody's got to feed the kids and like a lot of it does fall on women. So Fatima, I did this, I did an internal investigation into the Dallas Mavericks basketball team into the sort of 20 year period of sexual harassment, the CEO, this was a couple of years ago. And the top recommendation we made coming out of it was have more women at every level of the workplace, right? And I did a ton of work. I read a lot of the National Women's Law Center work that you've led. I read just like all these researchers, the sort of Harvard experts on you know, employment and and basically reducing harassment. And number one came out to be like, improve the numbers, right? At all levels. And so like, how do you think about this problem, right? Which is like, to me, like, it's such a critical piece of the Me Too movement is just getting women into more Mm -hmm. positions, particularly executive leadership positions, board positions, CEO positions. And now we're having this whole conversation about sometimes you got to make a sandwich or put Zoom on. Well, it changes the room, right? I mean, that is the thing that study after study has shown that when you have diverse voices, it, it changes both how people are leading, but it also, in fact, changes the room. You know, when I think about the National Women's Law Center, about a third of our staff have children who are elementary age mm-hmm. or younger, including those who are leading major campaigns and who are on their way to trial in one of our cases, who are carrying a load. And one of the things that's pretty clear is that it is not for this group of folks 
it's not just that they want to step back from working. They want to work. What they want is both the care supports and the employer-specific supports to make it possible. And so if you have a room where you don't have anyone who is sharing or thinking about those experiences, that burden is going to again and again and again be placed on women who have less power in the organization to to raise those issues. And so a diverse leadership for sure is part of it. But we also are in a period where we have to actually invent and test new strategies. We've never been here. So I'm hoping that there'll be some creativity that comes from it. I would love to see someone, maybe one of our listeners, give you a huge grant to do that. You're 100% right of like, we have like years of research and we've been struggling with the same problems for a long time. And like, Let's test new ideas and innovations. I love it. I'll tell you something that will change. You know, I look at these industries and how they'll be impacted, but travel. And as a working mother, travel for someone who traveled the world for most of my career, I miss parts of it. I miss... I miss the airplane ride in the empty <laughs> hotel room. <laughs> I miss the empty hotel room. I miss room I service. I, you know, you go to these cities and you're like, you know, oh, I'm going to go to this museum or listen to this concert. And like you get to the hotel and there's no kids and no husband. And you're like, actually, French fries and a Caesar salad sound like perfect, you know? And But travel may be actually something that we rethink. And to the extent that in in professions in which travel has hindered women's advancement because they do have kids. This I'm looking as a positive. When I look at my calendar the last six months, and I know I'm talking from a position of luxury, you know, in terms of being able to choose my travel, I would say, and this will be true of men as well, 60 to 70% of it, now that I look back, was absolutely unnecessary. Absolutely. Right. I mean, and so that may be, so maybe we are closer to home and that may actually have some benefits in a way in which we had built an entire structure that sort of assumed movement was progress. So Fatima, can you inspire us as we're sort of winding down and give us some words (laughs) of wisdom and also maybe tell us what we can do. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer. People ask me this a lot on policing reform and stuff. I often Tell people like whatever space you're in, do what you do. If you're a writer, write, figure out how to change the world through, through what you do. But what can we do? Like, I think all of us are passionate about this and I would love to, to help you or think, understand how to make this happen for all women. Well, here's my one point of hope about this period, because I, I've heard people talk about pandemics being portals of sorts and the ways of doing business have been shooken in a serious way, but I think we can emerge for the better. I'm trying to imagine Mm -hmm. what it would have taken to make visible the care burden so many people were facing going into this pandemic and to get the attention of policymakers in the way that we have it now. And so that relates to something that I think people can do. And that is people can tell their stories. We will put out wonderful data analyses, for, uh, you know, of all of the data that is out there. But the thing that moves policymakers and frankly moves hearts and minds are continuing to tell these stories. So it can't be this like quiet conversations amongst our friends only, even though keep doing that because that might fill your soul. But we need like a story core for all of our experiences, right? Like a way to make a portal of just recording what it's like. Can I come clean with my worst, my worst slash best pandemic parenting moment? Yes. And that sounds good. We're we're ending with this. We're ending with this. 
So um, we actually have someone who we hired to help us just so that we could maintain a good relationship with our child. But she was not there one day. And so I had to get him onto Zoom at a particular time, but the Zoom time conflicted with my own Zoom call. So I asked my son, you know, do you think you can get on the Zoom call yourself? I've set it all up. All you have to do is press, you know, join. He's like, oh, I can definitely do this. I'm like, okay. When the hand is on the 11 and the the big hand's on the six, like that's when you do it. He's like, I got this. I'm like, okay. So I get on my call. 20 minutes into the call, the kid comes up and he's like frantic. I missed my Zoom call. They're giving out tickets for good behavior and I'm going to miss my tickets. I'm like, but I, but I thought I told you what time. He's like, mommy, that clock has hands on it. We live in a digital world. <laughs> I fail to take that into account. So that is like, we are all failing, but you're right, Fatima, in our failure is a window yes. into the care burden that we all need yes. to surface and raise up. And thank you so much. I hope you can come back and speak with us some more on this topic and the other fantastic things that you're doing at the National Women's Law Center. We would love to have you back. So thanks for taking the time to join us tonight. So that's it for the show this week. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at TF underscore W-A-T-T. That's Talking Feds underscore Women at the Table for news and updates. And if you'd like to share your COVID caregiving moments with us, please tweet at us with the hashtag COVID caregiving W-A-T-T. Talking Feds, Women at the Table is produced by Harry Littman and Jennifer Bassett with production assistance by Matt McCardle. Our editor is Justin Wright from Seaplane Armada. As always, we are grateful to the amazing Philip Glass for letting us use his music. Talking Feds, Women at the Table is a production of Delito LLC. See you all next time.